Welcome to Whiskey and Wonder. Oh, welcome, guys. Hi, guys. Episode 26. 26. We are back. We are semi-live. We're live now, but when you listen to us, we're probably not going to be saying and doing the exact same things. Probably not. That'd be a little weird. That'd be kind of cool. Maybe in another universe, in another dimension yeah. somewhere. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my name's Tyler. And I'm Megan. And we're excited to present Whiskey and Wonders' first two-part episode. OMG, it's a two-parter. Um, so I, when we actually hit the wonder segment and I start explaining what my topic is about, I'll kind of go over the specifics of why it's a two-part episode. Um, for now, those of you guys just uh, joining in, I ended up reading a 600-page book for my research instead of the typical, like, articles and essays and stuff I read. So <laughs> I, I fell hard into this research. So let's give her a round of applause. Oh, for thank that. you. Thank you. So. She busted ass this week for I did. me, for you guys. I did. And for, for myself. Her, it sounds like she enjoyed yeah, it. I so. loved it. Um, so you guys will hear now my gorgeous voice two weeks in a row. Sorry, Tyler, but. Oh, I'm. <laughs> you go right ahead. You do as many two-parters as you want to. <laughs> I I struggle to find the time sometimes. So that's all we'll, right. Uh, I quite enjoyed this topic. Um, I'm, I'm so. glad. I'm I'm excited for it. So we're gonna hop right into our uh, what we do here. We yeah, yeah, you've been here long enough. You know what we do. I'm not even gonna say what we do. If you don't go listen to previous episodes, how's that? We review whiskey and teach other something new. Oh. All right. Well, so there's that. <laughs> anyway, uh, you can find us on uh, whiskeyandwonder.com, at Whiskey Podcast on Instagram, uh, YouTube, Whiskey and Wonder is our channel name. And all the rest you can find if you're watching us on YouTube, it's all listed below. And if you're uh, just listening to the podcast, this is all in the show notes. Check it below. Your, yeah, your hands <laughs> off screen there. <laughs> Um, a couple of announcements. Uh, it's basically the same old shit. If you've been listening, uh, we still got stickers. They're three dollars. You can find those on the website store. Uh, the whiskey glasses are here. I do not have one in here currently to show, but you can see pictures of them on the website and on Instagram. Uh, if you want to buy a glass, it's uh, one glass is eight dollars. Two glasses are fifteen. Three are twenty, and four twenty-five. You'll have to pay shipping costs, so you'll need to email us and let us know where we need to ship it to, and we can figure out the shipping costs and give you your total. Um, or if you're local and know us, you can pick us up if you're in the Charlotte area, even if you don't know us. And, yeah, if you know, you're just in the Charlotte area and you want glasses. We might do that. Can, if, if you seem shady, we might not, just for safety reasons, but I'll probably meet you. But I, 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 I would meet them. I'm not scared. I'm scared. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable with that, so. Oh, Tyler. Anyway, um, also our Patreon is live for donations, and um, Megan is looking into t-shirt providers for us, so she should have that. Yes, uh, more things I was supposed to do this week, and then I read a 600-page book instead. <laughs> um, so the big news, the big announcement, the bad announcement, 
Our Amazon link is no longer live. <laughs> I don't um, want to talk about it. Yeah, I don't really either. Amazon sent us an email out of the blue the other day saying that they have closed our account because um, purchases resulting from special links on your site have been for personal use or have been made by your friends, relatives, employees, contractors, or business relations. I have since reached out to Amazon to try and get a little bit better of an explanation uh, because, I mean, a lot of people that listen are friends and family. And I mean, I can't really control who clicks that link. We're putting it on our podcast page. So I'm trying to get a better answer from Amazon. They're taking all the money that we had gotten, um, which was like a surprise. It was like $60, $70, which for us. That's a nice chunk of change. That's huge for, you know, I mean, that's two thirds of a new microphone. So we can have a guest in here. Mm -hmm. And Amazon's just flat out taking it. And I will be 100% honest with everybody listening. If they don't open this back up, I will boycott Amazon. I will switch to Walmart two-day shipping. Uh, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Um, they can go fuck themselves if that's the way they're going to be. Um, so, yeah, we're that's down. You can't find anything on the sponsor page. I've taken it. They asked us to take it offline, so I did. And that's that. As always, though, Thank you all for the donations and the support. You can donate through Patreon. You can donate through PayPal. Um, You can find links to that on Whiskey and Wonder on the homepage. Or you can donate straight to us, uh, the PayPal, paypal.me slash Whiskey and Wonder. All that's in the show notes. Yep. And on that note... Opening the bottle. Something a little more fun. Yes. So, this is our last Flaviar, uh, last Flaviar sample for this quarter. Um, this is a Belgian whiskey. It is a Belgian single malt whiskey that I'm going to mispronounce. That is called Gouden Carolus. Gouden Carolus is what I'm going to go with. This came from the Heck. Anchor Brewery in 1471, which renamed itself in 1960 to Gooden Careless. And you heard me say that right. And you heard me hit a, <laughs> hit a glass with Megan's glass. Uh, you heard me say that right. Brewery. This is a whiskey that is distilled in a brewery as a companion to beer. They also make a beer called the Golden Careless Triple Beer. Um, and the whiskey is distilled from a mash of that beer. So I'm excited if it's going to taste maybe a little bit beer-y. Um, they, you, you didn't see my face, but everybody on YouTube just did. I just took my first real whiff of it. I've been kind of smelling the... Uh, violet came out of, but I just took a real whiff and it is an odd smell. Okay. It's not bad, but it's an odd smell. Okay. Um, the founders of the distillery ordered a handmade copper pot from Cooper's in Scotland, the first of its kind in Belgium. So they can't call their whiskey a scotch because it's not from Scotland, but it's a single malt whiskey that is made in copper pots that it, it's, it's a scotch. 
For anybody that doesn't know uh, what a single malt is, that's essentially a whiskey that is, it lives its whole life and, and all of its parts come from one distillery. Um, whereas blended uh, maybe blends from different distilleries. This A single malt, technically a single malt whiskey can be blended. It's just blended from whiskeys derived from that one distillery. That's the key. So as you were talking, I just smelled, and I don't know if it's psychosomatic or if it actually has a little bit of a hoppy smell. Um, but when I when I took a whiff, it I I definitely got some like hoppy kind of beer essence. Um, I don't know if I'm making that up or if that's something that I really smelled. Um, I hesitate to say it smells good um i'm a little worried because i'm not a huge beer person i like sours i love sours but other than that i am a bitch beer drinker and heavy spirits um so i apologize to everybody on youtube you just saw me get real close there and all that good stuff i noticed the camera every time one of the tables would get bumped the camera would start wiggling. I played around with it a little bit. Um, and, and you can tell our video feeds a little better because my camera the last couple of weeks wouldn't focus for whatever reason. So I adjusted it and I just had to readjust it so that it wouldn't wobble on you guys. I I keep smelling it and I'm trying to smell anything other than hops. I definitely um, get a slight beer flavor to it. I get some vanilla um, and some sort of fruit. Maybe like a... Peach. I, I was thinking more like an apple, apple, mm. something a little tart. Okay, well, uh, let's take a look at what we're supposed to be smelling. Yes, let's do that. So, supposed to be fresh aromas of fruits, citrus, vanilla, and creme brulee. So, creme brulee, huh? Oh. And if you look at the flavor spiral on um, Flaviar. I think we should wait and do the flavor okay. spiral until we actually taste it. Okay, I um, wait. And I wait. Yes. There's a reason Megan brought that up, and I'll... There is, yes. Uh, we'll talk about that. Yeah. Um, also, Flaviar, if you are listening, thank you for uh, commenting on our Instagram saying that our episode is as good as it always is. I'm not convinced you actually listen or that any of your employees listen, but if you do, that's fucking cool. Damn, and let us know. Call them out on that one. <laughs> they commented like, oh, great episode as always, guys. I'm like, mm, is if it? you listen, reach out to us. Let us know. Hey, we'd love to be, you know, we'd love to promote your product more. We would. We'd love to be paid to promote your product, I guess. We would. We, we already kind of promote it. When we first, first, first started this podcast, Maybe before we even had an episode published, we sent in an application to Flaviar to be a, uh, I don't know, a brand sponsor, brand representative, yeah. whatever. And that never came through. So now that we're more popular, maybe Flaviar checks out again, especially yeah. if you listen. Flaviar, like, yeah. Let me, let me tell you, we got uh, 1,386 listens, 60, well, subscribers is a load of horse crap, but um. We average about 60, 77 day listens. And that's not us listening 50 no. times, I promise. <laughs> I've, I've got to the point where I've got the audio quality for the most part down. I don't even have to listen if I don't want to. 
<laughs> so, <laughs> so talk. Uh, so we talked about what we what we smell. Yeah. So I reckon it's time to taste it. Have you tasted it already? I have not yet. I thought you were gonna do that. Okay. No, I'm just um, bad. Okay. I I'm trying to watch your face and kill airtime as you're tasting. You have such a stoic face that it's so hard. You're not the first person to tell me that. So it's I'm, so hard I'm to being read you. Very, very. We only get a little bit with these vials from Flaviar, so I'm taking baby sips. Um, it's it's oh. to me that is. It started off here, here, and then it dropped down a little bit on the finish yep. as far as. Overall, but yep. it wasn't bad, and it's you can tell it's in the Scotch range yes. just because of the finish. It the finish is super peaty, peaty, leathery. Yeah, but I'd, the start, it's start is very fruity, fruity and crisp, and floral and, or not floral, fruity and sweet and crisp, and I I really yeah, like it. Yeah, like I and wish definitely apple, uh, maybe even maybe a hint of pineapple um, in there. Maybe I don't know if I'm getting um, I'm getting apple for sure now that I've tasted it, and I'm still getting peach. Um, and I'm still getting hops, which again might be psychosomatic. So don't, um, don't hang on the fact and that this tastes like hops. It does have, uh, um, a burn. It's a noticeable mm. spice, a noticeable burn, but it's not overpowering and it goes, it's on kind of on the middle. It's like sweet burn and then it finishes peaty, a little bit leathery. Yeah. Um, kind of ashy. Yeah, I, um, I, I, the peat is really what more what I get. Not so much ash. I'm getting a little bit of ashy type. Um, uh, as far as the smell goes, we um, I don't have very much of a like burn my nose hairs out smell. It's, no, it's not. It's definitely you can smell some of the spice, some of the alcohol, but it's not overpowering like some have been. Yes. Um. We'll definitely have to give our reviews at the end, obviously. But as of right now, this very second, I wish it didn't have the finish. I would really, really, really like it without the current finish that it has. Ooh. I just looked at the thing and I, I taste some. Now that I've read it, I taste a smaller. I taste something in here. So what are we supposed to be tasting? Would you like me to go first or would you? I will go first and actually read it. Uh, we are supposed to be tasting full and balanced uh, notes of wood, peach, apple, and vanilla. And the finish is supposed to be short with a bittersweet balance. I would say that's very accurate. Yeah. I'm not getting very much peach, but a lot of that probably has to do with the fact that I don't like peaches. I don't like peach, so I don't eat many <laughs> peaches. I kind of probably forgot what they taste like at this point. I haven't eaten peaches since I was a kid. I get peach on the initial sip. Like, that's the first thing I taste when it hits my tongue. I get peach, sweet apple, and then it it go, falls from there. I get apple. Mm, I don't know. Interesting. Um, so... I don't want to... I don't want to do this out of order. Um, I'll just suffice to say... Later on in the episode, we will explain a little bit more about these Flaviar cards. If you remember last week, 
we've we've uh, and for several weeks we've been like how the hell do you read these yeah, since we so. started this podcast and we first got our flaviar subscription we have not figured out how to read the flavor spiral and, and spoiler alert i still don't know how to read yeah the flavor spiral. yeah i'm gonna be i'm gonna be honest <laughs> with you i i think i have it but it was a tad confusing anyway, yeah we'll we'll read it to you guys and you can see if you understand it better than we do according to flaviar what we should be tasting is vanilla bittersweet citrus apple peach woody chocolate fruit and orange peel and chocolate was the one that when you know when i saw this and looked at it and took a sip i do get just a subtle subtle hint of chocolate like at the mid kind of kind of at the end of the mid um but it's yeah that's one of those i wouldn't have gotten it until i saw it but yes that, that's according to flaviar yeah i would agree so. Uh, a little bit in the mid, there's like a quick drop of like Hershey's chocolate syrup and then it's gone. Um, the more I drink it, the more my finish tastes like the finish you get after you drink a Bud Light. <laughs> I, t- I haven't had a Bud Light in so long. I mean, I, it, it tastes like water to me. So This is so psychosomatic. Um, I think I'm inventing the beer flavor in my head. Because I read the description of the distillery. <gasps> um, so take everything I say uh, about this whiskey this week with a little bit of a grain of salt. Um, don't press it. <laughs> don't you press it. Tyler's over there hovering <laughs> over the button. Don't do it. Yeehaw, yeehaw. Damn it. Yep, I'm pressing it. Uh, all right. Anywho. Well, I don't know what this is going to be. I'm anxious to find out what these. Uh, how many how many pages of notes did you end up having? Because uh, was did you say sixteen was your halfway point? Uh, it ended up being twenty is my halfway point. <laughs> uh, Just so the people on YouTube could notes. get the gravitas of that situation, the microphone's blocking my mouth, so I pulled it down so they could see my jaw agape. Um, all right. I have not finished all my notes because again, six hundred page book, trying to take notes. Also. Using more than the 600-page book, I've still had to, like, I've consulted MIT and some other websites as well to learn some other things, so. Damn. Well, all right, then. I, I fell in hard. Hard, hard, hard. It's time for the Wonder Segment. Well, wonder me something. All right. So, in our first ever two-part episode... Our first part, I'm going to be talking about the Chernobyl disaster. Oh, my God. Yes. (laughs) Uh, I decided my second part will be the aftermath of Chernobyl. So I'm going to give all this information up until the disaster happens. We will end there. And then next week, I'll explain the cleanup and what the Soviet Union did and everything afterwards. Um. So the main source, I would say I got 90% of my source of information from a book called Midnight in Chernobyl by Adam Higginbotham. And here's some of the accolades this book has gotten. New York Times, best book of the year. Time, best book of the year. Kirkus Reviews, nonfiction, book of the year. 
the 2020 Andrew Carnegie Medal for Excellence. And it's on one of NPR's best books of 2019 list. It was published on February 12th, 2019 and is 561 pages long. Adam Higginbotham is a research journalist um, who devoted I, 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 an indescribable amount of time learning everything he could about Chernobyl, um, researching people who are still alive, if he could talk to them, just am- amazing, amazing things. The research he put into this is fantastic. So 100%, if you are into this topic at all, check out Midnight in Chernobyl. I'm not going to go over everything in the 600-page book because that's 600 pages. So there's a lot of information you guys are not going to get from listening to the podcast. And yeah, all right. I I wanted to make sure Adam got all that credit because he deserves it. I'm going to give him a round of applause because it sounds like He's probably gotten a thousand rounds of applause already for all those awards, but one yeah. more doesn't hurt. <laughs> um, so Chernobyl is a pretty well-known word and well-known event in history by this point. Um, but for those of you who don't know, on Sab- Saturday, April 26th in 1986, in Priet, northern Ukraine and the SSR, Soviet Union, had the worst nuclear disaster in history. It is one of two accidents rated at maximum severity on the international nuclear events scale. It earned a seven. The only other event that has earned a seven was the Fukushima, Japan uh, nuclear disaster that happened in 2011. Um, And many, many argue that Chernobyl is worse than that. Um, and it, we're going to find out what happened and why it happened. Um, and just know that this is some scary, scary, scary shit, uh, because it's Soviet Union, it's Russia, Ukraine. I'm going to mispronounce everything. (laughs) So, (laughs) uh, if you are Ukrainian, if you're Russian, if you are offended by the way I say things, I'm sorry. Write us emails and let us know how phonetically how to pronounce uh, the cities, the towns, the, the words. Yeah, everything. Anything. Yeah, we, we're dumb. I'm dumb. She's, I'm, she's smarter, but still dumb. We're, we're all a little dumb <laughs> <laughs> for an educational podcast. <laughs> all right. So, plant director Viktor Brukhanov came to Ukraine with orders to build the greatest nuclear power plant on Earth. On February 20th, 1970, after months of discussion, the Soviets decided to name their nuclear power plant after the regional capital 14 kilometers away, Chernobyl. In 1954, the Soviet Union led the world in nuclear engineering completing the first reactor that produced commercial electricity. But by 1969, the USSR fell hopelessly behind. As the USA began its final prep to land on the moon, the Soviet Minister of Energy and Electrification, Anatoly Marupets, called for aggressive expansion of nuclear production. 
1972, an atom grad, or an atomic city, was developed to house the thousands of staff and their families that would run the plant. It was named Priat. Close enough to reach the plant in less than 10 minutes, just three kilometers away. Supposed to be far enough away that they wouldn't be exposed to radiation. Each reactor, not yet built, should generate 1,000 megawatts of electricity, enough to power 1 million homes each. Brukhanov began working in 1970 to develop the Chernobyl nuclear power plant. And this is the USSR. This is the Soviet Union. This is communism. Pure, pure Lenin Marxist communism. Eh, oh. I just realized why you said earlier today, I'm going to be talking in this voice all day now. <laughs> I understand why you said it in a, in a Russian accent. Yet they talk all day in Russian yeah, accent. Yeah, Soviet Russia, greatest country besides USNA. <laughs> Um, so Brukhanov was given an impossible timetable. The first reactor was supposed to go live in December of 1975, and the second reactor was supposed to go live in 1979. On top of these unrealistic expectations, the USSR hit the start of the era of stagnation. The era of stagnation was an issue in uh, communist Russia, where issues arose in every industry. Corruption, shortage, shortages, bottlenecks, theft, embezzlement, and basically not not very communist, not very socialist. Um, pretty shit. Pretty shit. People like, the reason why communism and socialism can't work is because people are awful. And people in power use their power for things they should not. Oh, so the same reason that capitalism fails, too. Yeah, exactly. Not to sound communist or socialist. I'm neither, but I mean, they all suck. Everything sucks. This world sucks. world is misery. Or it is. Life is, life is misery. Life is misery. I don't want to live on this planet. Settle down, Hubert Farnsworth. <laughs> so, Brukhanov struggled from the very beginning. Lack of construction equipment. Materials would either turn up late or not show up at all, and when there, they were often defective or of poor quality. They also suffered from duplica duplication of labor, which added tons more cost and time. So basically, they would be shipped these materials that were pretty shitty quality. They'd go ahead and build it, and then someone would have to go behind them, take it apart, rebuild it so it was better. So they're doing the is same... Soviet, <laughs> is Soviet Russian efficiency? Yes. Only have to touch twice, not three times. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, three years into the project and little progress to show for it, director Victor, Victor Burkhanov drove to Kiev in July 1972, prepared to announce his resignation to the Ener Energy Ministry. By 1972, there were no progress on this nuclear power plant. And the first reactor was supposed to go live in 1975. He's the director, so he's the big boss. He's on top of the top, and he's being 
treated like shit. He can't get the shit he needs. He can't get the machines he needs. And he is done. He's like, this is bullshit. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm going to quit. You can go fuck yourself. Yes. Victor. His name is Victor? Yep. Victor quits. Yes, exactly. So he wrote a letter of resignation, drove to Kiev, and handed it to his supervisor, who took the letter from his hands and ripped it into pieces and told him to get back to work. You go to Gulag. <laughs> Brukhanov realized he was stuck. His priority to obey the party by any means. So, again... USSR was not exactly the most uncorrupt nation at the time. And Victor became a, a pawn in the Communist Party. And he was not allowed to break away from that um, without jeopardizing his life and his family's lives. Like I said, you go to Gulag. Yep. So. He turns around, he goes back to Priat, and he continues working on this nuclear power plant. And in August of 1972, the first cubic meter of concrete was poured into the foundations of the plant. On November 7th of 1985, Brukhanov was hailed for his achievements, his success, and leadership. Priat in 1985, was a town of 50,000 people and four huge reactors with two more being constructed set to complete in 1988. It would make Chernobyl, known then formally as the VI Lenin Nuclear Power Station, the largest nuclear power complex on Earth. And Atomgrad, remember the city that surrounds Chernobyl is an Atomgrad because it's a city that was developed just to be an atomic city, meant that Everything about the city, from its hospital to its schools to its parks and more, was an extension of the plant. Everything revolved around Chernobyl. Um, because of this, Priat was financed in an economic bubble by the Ministry of Energy. Basically, they had their own economy within the USSR. Um, side note, uh, just kind of relatable real quick. Uh, my father and my grandfather both worked for the same uh, aluminum plant and the entire small town that the plant is in is there because of the plant. That's where all the workers lived. Yep. Same concept. And my dad still lives in that same town. My grandfather lived there yep. for years. You know, uh, he lives 10 minutes down the road from it now. So it's one of those... We have the same, and the, uh, and it's like you said, the economy was based around the power plant. Yeah. Uh, and in this case, the aluminum plant, and they shut it down and sold it off, and it's dead. And the it, town fell apart, right? Yeah, the town's a piece of shit. I mean, it was never great, but it's... It, it was destroyed because yeah, of it. Yeah, it's terrible now. Yeah, there's several mining towns, like in Virginia and all over the country, that lost the plants and mines and everything that they were attached to and have since just crumbled fallen away yep. yeah so in 1985 leader of the soviet union 
Secretary Mikhail Gorbachev was the first to exploit television. Though no stranger to propaganda, citizens of the USSR had not yet seen the power of television. Gorbachev was recorded spontaneously joining the common people. Actually, any time he was on camera, it had all been carefully, carefully orchestrated and planned by the KGB. But it made him look like he was one of the people. He also constantly appeared on the most popular news show watched by approximately two, yeah, 200 million uh, people nightly. He was popular. A lot of Soviets really enjoyed him. But the era of stagnation still played, plagued the nation. The Cold War was a heavy burden and a nuclear strike seemed likely and close. And you got to think that's going to be a high risk target. Yep. Just like, so we live in the shadow of two nuclear plants and they're definitely, if I mean, those are high risk targets. Oh yeah. I remember my mom on September 11th, like they evacuated her work. She worked at freaking all state insurance and they <laughs> over in university and they evacuated her, her work because they were so close to one of the nuclear plants. Yep. It's, they were like, they didn't know what was happening on September 11th. So yeah, it's a place that easily could be exploited and mm-hmm. bombed and destroyed a lot of and wreak havoc. Yeah. Yeah. To put it mildly, as yeah. we'll see next week. Yeah. Um, so, in order for Viktor Brukhanov to build the success of Chernobyl, he had to cut corners. He had to cook the books. He had to fudge regulations. So, a couple examples. A plan required the use of fireproof cables, but... None could be found. No one knew how to get these fireproof cables. So they just proceeded anyway with not fireproof cables. Because, oh, well. He's Soviet Russia way. Yes. Uh, the roof of the plant's turbine was painted with highly flammable bitumen. And officials ordered it replaced. But the USSR didn't manufacture the flame retardant chemical. So, oh, well, it was not replaced. So, those are just... Yes, I did last week. Yes. I, repl- I I painted entire roof yep. last week. So, that those are just a couple of the examples of Chernobyl and its issues. Now, give <laughs> me back my vodka. <laughs> uh, actually, Mikhail Gorbachev instructed Viktor Brukhanov to build an Olympic swimming pool. An exorbitant and unnecessary luxury for a town as small as Priyat. And Brukhanov tried to argue with him. Like, there were a small town. There is no reason for us to have something this big and this grandiose. It's going to be way too much money. It's not going to make any sense. Well, Brukhanov never got what he wanted. And so Gorbachev said, nope, you're going to build this Olympic swimming pool. Because I said so. So in order to build the swimming pool, he had to trick the state bank by cooking city expenses. So 
lots and lots and lots of issues uh, surrounding Priot and the Chernobyl power plant. The fourth reactor had a deadline to be completed December of 1983. Still, it had a very time-consuming safety test on its turbines. To make Moscow's deadline, Brukhanov postponed the test. The Soviet Ministry of Energy and Electrification began to push their demands and schedule even harder, demanding more impressive projects at faster and faster rates. The USSR intended to have a network of nuclear complexes, each with at least 12 reactors by the end of the 1900s. So by 1999, they wanted to control the world's energy basically by having dozens and dozens of nuclear power plants with dozens and dozens of reactors to run them. Well, you know what they say, want in one hand, shit in the other and see which one fills up faster. <laughs> On the evening of April 25th, reactor four was scheduled for maintenance, uh, for maintenance shutdown following overdue tests on its turbines. It should have been an easy night. The graveyard shift just overseeing the cooldown of the reactor. But the tests were running 12 hours behind and only just beginning. Um, now, I realize I kind of skipped ahead here. Um, I last ended, now that I'm looking at it, talking about the fourth reactor was supposed to be completed in December of 1983. Yes, that happened. It was completed December of 1983. We are now jumping to April 25th of 1986. So, if you paid attention a little bit ago, the disaster happened on April 26th. So, this is the day before. That afternoon, a turbine generator test was scheduled. It was a test to check the safety system in case Reactor 4 experienced an electrical blackout. If the plant lost power, the giant coolant pumps would halt. It would take 40 seconds to three minutes for the emergency diesel generators to start up and get the coolant pumps moving again. But that gap of time was long enough for a core meltdown to begin. So the test was to ensure the rundown unit would work. The rundown unit is a mechanism that would use the momentum of the unit's turbines to drive the pumps while the generators started. So it would keep the water flowing and cooling uh, the reactor cores until they could get started again with actual power. This was a crucial safety feature that was supposed to be tested before being approved. But to meet deadlines, Director Brukhanov approved skipping the test to get the reactor online by December 1983. They did do subsequent tests when the, actor went, when the reactor went live, and every subsequent test failed. By 1986, the test was now two years overdue. But the scheduled maintenance shutdown <laughs> offered a perfect, controlled, real-world opportunity to complete the rundown unit test. 
At 2 p.m., the test was ready to begin. But central dispatch of the Kiev electrical grid intervened. The weekend was a three-day holiday for celebrating May Day. So the Ukraine required every kilowatt of energy Chernobyl could supply to meet production quotas at factories before the long weekend. Reactor 4 could not go offline until at least 9 p.m. after peak load time has passed. By midnight on Friday, the team of electrical engineers there to monitor the test were threatening to go home if it didn't start soon. Control room number four staff had reached the end of their shift and were preparing to go home. The next shift staff hadn't been prepped for the test at all. The physicist from the nuclear safety department had been told that the test had already been completed, so he wasn't needed to help the test, so he never showed up to the plant at all. These guys were a bunch of winners. (laughs) Oh, it's scary. Leonid Tupanov had started working the plant just two months prior. He was in his early 20s, and he was now supposed to run the shutdown for the first time in his life. Two years into working the plant. Or two months, I'm sorry. Two months into working the plant, he was now going to be in charge of a huge part of the shutdown. Mm. Mm. Deputy Chief Engineer Antoly Dyatlov refused to postpone the test. It would be at least another year before it could be attempted again. So Antoly, uh, Antoly Dyatlov, before arriving to work for Chernobyl 14 years prior, worked in a top-secret military lab. It was known as Laboratory 23. Now, Anatoly, coming from this military background, was used to everyone obeying him, everyone listening to him. He didn't take other people's advice or he didn't take anyone arguing with him. It was his his way or the highway. And he was the deputy chief engineer. So he was pretty much in charge. Now, when the big boss is saying, we're going to do this test no matter what, you're probably gonna We're do, going to do the test. You're going to do the test. Yes. Now, 14 years prior, when Dyatlov worked at Laboratory 23, Laboratory 3 had an explosion that was covered up. We only found out about it after the USSR fell, and a lot of that information was released, basically. Laboratory 23's explosion exposed Antoly to 100 REM, a huge dose of radiation. So let's pause right here. Just stop. Not. Yep. Yep. Do it. Do it. Oh, you lost. There you go. (laughs) There it is. I was like, shit, it wasn't the button I thought it was, but. You did it. I got there. I'm proud of you. So. Let's take a step back from Chernobyl a little bit to talk about radiation and rocket science. Let's do it. So, I read through several, like, research papers that college kids did for, like, MIT and Harvard and 
stuff that reading made my head just hurt and I had to sit down and try to figure it out. And then I would have to ask Houston, like, does this make any fucking sense to you? Because believe it or not, I am not a rocket scientist. Is everybody not the rocket science? I apparently. I'm sorry. I'm not going to be able to not talk in this voice. I am trying really hard not to talk in this voice, in that voice. So it's so tempting. I'm, it's so tempting. I want to tell the entire thing in a bad Russian accent, but I'm controlling myself. So, and Anatoly was hit by a hundred REM. What is REM? REM is called Rentgen Equivalent Man, and it is a unit used to measure doses of radiation on the human body. What we've heard more of is RAD. R-A-D, which is radiation absorbed dose. The radiation absorbed dose is the original measurement for expressing the absorption of all types of radiation into any medium. So, have you played Fallout, Tyler? I have not. Of course you haven't. Okay. In the Fallout series, obviously it's the world after a nuclear disaster. And you can get exposed to radiation. You'll get exposed to rad. And really, the uh, Bethesda, the creators of um, Fallout, probably should have said you were getting exposed to REM. Because REM is what happens when the radiation hits anything biological. The human body, animals, blah, blah, blah. Plants. Yeah, anything that is alive. Yes. Rad is when it's something that is not alive that's been touched by radiation. So Technically, that could be the air. Technically, Air yes. is a medium. Yes, technically. Yeah, so, building. Building, glass, rocks, etc., etc., etc. Now, there are a lot of different types of radiation. There's alpha waves, beta waves, gamma rays, uh, neuron rays. There's, there's a whole lot that I am not going to sit down and talk about because, oh my God, we don't need to know that for right now. So basically, in the simplest terms, I could write it in. REM equals biological effective radiation. RAD equals effective radiation on all agencies. So on all objects. Yes. Living or otherwise. Yes. Physicists agree that RIM and RAD are equivalent. Only difference is terminology in what the radiation is absorbed into, material versus tissue. So we're splitting hairs here. Yeah, exactly. It's the same fucking thing. Why can't we just make it be the same fucking thing? Damn it. (laughs) Good job, scientists. So I was reading through a paper from MIT doing this. And that's where I found that Rem and Rad are the same thing. And I literally like threw a fit in the middle of the living room. Like Houston, I'm sure thought I was insane because I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Because I read all of this. I haven't had a good chance to use that one in a while. You've been wanting to use that for so long. Wow. I got it. Ouch. Well, anyway, I threw a fit because I read all sorts of stuff about radiation, trying to learn the difference between REM and RAD, 
only for some MIT college kid to say, but yeah, they're the same thing. So don't worry about it. I, so. I picture in my head, you like, like a child, like stamping your feet and like flailing your arms. Basically only I was wrapped up in a blanket on the couch and I was kind of pouting. Oh, you know, so the nuclear registry commission states that 5,000 M rem a year is considered safe. So one rem equals 1,000 millirems or M rems. The general, so, whoop. Say that, how many, it's one M rem? Yes. So one rem, one REM equals 1,000 M rem. And how much, how many M rems were approved or an appropriate dose? It is safe. And this is as of 2021, the Nuclear Registry Commission states that it is safe to be exposed to 5,000 M rem a year. Okay. So five rem. Yes. That's, that's the, I was trying to do the conversion in my head, but yes. I, I missed the number. Yes. And I was actually going to do the conversion oh, for you later on, but sorry. that's I. So the general population of the entire world experiences 620 mrem of background, background radiation a year. This is the radiation that just lives in our air, our society. It's never going away. It comes from uranium breaking down in the rock. Exactly. It just, it's there. Exactly. Um, Americans actually only experience a little more than 300 mrem of background radiation a year. But... You know, 620 is the average for the world. Okay. A chest x-ray exposes you to 10 MREMs. A coast-to-coast flight from New York to California is 1.5 MREMs. And I could go into the details of different radiation types and how you convert alpha to rad and gamma to rad versus all that because there was a whole fucking multi-page thing on how to do that but it's not necessary to learn about Chernobyl to know all those things so if you want to learn more about radiation you want to know the differences between the radiations and everything you can visit nrc.gov to learn more so again I, I'm the kind of dork that likes that sort of stuff, so I will probably be going there. All right. So, again, that is the NRC.gov. That's the Nuclear Registry Commission. American. Yes. Not Soviet. Right. This is 2021. Just want to clarify that. 2021 their, today. Their regulation is pretty shit. I mean, Soviet Rafa. 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 <laughs> Soviet Rafa no longer exists. Yeah, Soviet Rafa. You know, I was over here thinking, like, if we think the stuff made in China is terrible, the stuff, like, it's cheap and junk. Oh, my God. I can't imagine if the USSR was still around and they produced stuff. Like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even want to buy it. At least some stuff that's made in China is all right. I don't know if, if the USSR had survived. I don't know if America would be on speaking terms with them. Like, the Cold War was pretty. Yeah. Pretty intense. I don't know if, if any, either one of us would have survived, honestly, um, if yeah. it had escalated. It would be very interesting to see if things, if the Cold War never ended and China. Yeah. That would actually be a little scary because China's communist. 
Soviet Russia was communist too. Yes. So we'd kind of be outnumbered. We'd have us and our allies, but that would be very interesting. Anyway, back to the topic. At one point, Pepsi had the sixth largest military in the world. I'm not worried about Gotta protect the dew. Gotta protect the dew. Um, thank you, Reddit, for that uh, tidbit of information. So let's oh, go. I'm glad that wasn't a future trivia with Tyler because I would have been very oh, I saw frustrated. Already. That would have been hysterical. <laughs> All right. So I talked to you guys a little bit about radiation. Let's get back to Chernobyl. The reason why I talked to you guys about that at all is because 14 years ago, in Deputy Chief Engineer Anatoly Dyatlov's past job in Laboratory 23 had an explosion where he experienced 100 REM in an explosion at one time. Dead man walking. He was hit with a hundred thousand MREM or 20 times the maximum yearly limit. The accident at Laboratory 23 was covered up by the USSR, but later on, one of Dyatlov's sons developed leukemia and died at age nine. Most likely, these were connected, but there is no definite guarantee, but General consensus is because he was hit with so much radiation, his son developed cancer. Mm. Mm. So, but despite, um, despite this, despite his massive exposure to radiation, Dyatlov had reservations about the reactor at Chernobyl, for which he worked with daily for the past 14 years. He stated that despite all of his experience in mastery and schooling, RBMK-1000, which is the type of reactor that Reactor 4 was, was an enigma. And even he, the chief engineer, didn't fully understand it. I'm sorry. Hold on. You are the chief engineer. And you don't understand the thing you're the chief engineer of? Yeah, I, uh, you, uh, yeah. I made that same connection. Uh, that's pretty damn bad. That's terrifying. Yeah. So um, one of the issues with uh, communist Russia and USSR was because it was communist, unemployment was not allowed to be a thing. And every city had to provide work for every single citizen. And so... The plant, Chernobyl, employed tons of people that just didn't do anything. They would come to work and sit around and play cards and chat because they weren't trained on how to run a nuclear power plant. That sounds like my kind of deal. I will play <laughs> cards for 50,000 ruble per day. Oh, per day, huh? Yes, 50,000 ruble per day. I will play you cards all day. I will even let you win for 50,000 ruble. <laughs> All right, you you tell the USSR that. Are you listening, USSR? <laughs> I will play you in cards every day for fifty thousand ruble. And a potato. And the potato. And a bottle of vodka. 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 I can't say it Russian. Vodka. It's n- th- there's not a big V. It's like vodka. 
Oh, I don't know. I had never actually heard any Russian. Oh. I just listened to Borat. Don't even think Borat's Russian. He's from Kazakhstan. Okay, so that's like part of what the USSR yeah, was, but he's not. Same basic place. Mm, not today. Anyway, let's go back to uh, Chernobyl. So just remember that the chief engineer of Reactor 4 had no idea what the fuck he was doing. So that's important. So just remember that. So the con- there was a control room for each reactor. And the control rooms were typically manned by four men. They had a shift foreman who basically oversaw the three other men and three operators. He dealt the cards and they played the cards. Yes. The operators ran the unit. So there was a reactor control engineer, a turbine control engineer, and a senior unit control engineer. The senior unit control engineer was in charge of the water supply, maintaining the pumps and the coolant. Hundreds of thousands of cubic meters of water flowed around the entire reactor in a constant loop through the pumps, turbines, steam separators, etc. The liquid kept the reactor cooled and prevented overheating. It prevented meltdowns. So just like a liquid-cooled computer today, that water has to stay moving in order to keep everything cool. It stops moving, shit starts fucking up. Water essentially starts boiling. Oh, we're going we're gonna to learn today. We're going to learn today. Mm. So the minimum megawatts required to perform this test while keeping the reactor safe was 700 megawatts. You could bring the reactor down to 700 megawatts of power and the pumps would run enough to keep it safe until the generators could kick on. The operators brought it down to 720 megawatts to run the test. But Chief Engineer Antoly Dyatlov demanded they lower it to 200 megawatts because lower meant better. I thought it was bigger is better. Apparently not. Not in Soviet Russia. They're backwards. Soviet Russia, number smaller, better. Oh, boy. It's like golf. (laughs) (laughs) That took a minute. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Oh, no, you're good. I want to go play golf. I do, too. Uh, So shift foreman. um, The shift foreman is the dude who's in charge of the three engineers that control the reactor. The shift foreman actually knew a little bit about what he was doing. His name was Alexander Akimov. And he fought with Dyatlov about not lowering the reactor to 200. He pulled out the test protocol book and had it in hand to show him that you cannot bring the reactor below 700. It cannot happen. It says in this goddamn manual that was written for this goddamn reactor. And Anatoly Dyatlov said, fuck off, I know better than you. We lower it to 200. Sounds like he had been drinking. <laughs> Pradvi vodka. Yes. Um, Dyatlov insisted he knew better and pulled rank to force the operators to comply. 
fearing that they would lose their jobs and possibly worse if they didn't, they decided that they would lower the reactor to 200 megawatts. Okay, I did it, boss. I'm leaving. Going on lunch now. Goodbye forever. <laughs> yeah. The reactor would be dangerously unstable and harder to control at 200, but not necessarily impossible. Except that the engineer in charge of the water pumps was Leonid Tapunov, the newbie who had only been working for Chernobyl for two months. Oh, dear. At 28 minutes past midnight, he made a fatal mistake. Literally. I turned the water off. (laughs) Kind of. The unit's computerized regulation system was set to local automatic control. That allowed Leonid to to manage regions of the core individually. At low power, you switched off. um, I wrote that wrong. No, no, I didn't. That is right. I'm right. I'm right. Local automatic control. Oh, my God. Whoops. Opening the bottle. What in the hell? (laughs) (laughs) I meant to hit the tire screech, and I went to pull my hand back when you gathered it up, and I accidentally hit the damn opening the bottle one. (laughs) Oh, well. Oh, whoops. I guess I'll have to fix that one. Yeah. Okay. Let's, um... All right. Reel that, it in. Reel it in. <laughs> fucked me up, Tyler. All right. All right. So I'm going to start at the beginning of my paragraph again because I confused sure. myself. The unit's computerized regulation system was set to local automatic control. That allowed Leonid to manage regions of the core individually. At low power, this was typically switched off. Tupanov began to transfer the regulation system to global automatic. This turns on autopilot for the RBMK-1000, where it would hold the power at a level of power that the operator would set the level to. So you say you want it running at 200 megawatts. I'll set it for 200 megawatts, and it's going to automatically do my job for me. It's going to keep it running by itself. But poor Leonid Topanov forgot this critical step. He didn't set the power level when switching to automatic. The computer defaulted to its last used setting at nearly zero megawatts. Leonid watched in horror as the power level fell farther and farther. He froze. Akimov, the shift foreman, screamed to maintain power as critical alarms blared. Failure in measuring circuits. Water flow decrease. Emergency power increase. Rate protection on. But Tupanov could not get control of the reactor back. Within two minutes, the reactor was powered by less than 1% of its capacity. It was powered by just 30 megawatts. The core began to get overwhelmed and entered a state called Xenon Well. The power stalled. At this point, the engineers should have aborted everything, completely shut down the reactor, and not done the test. They, it should have just, nope, we're done, we'll do it next year. 
fuck you, Anatoly Dietlov. We're going to stop right here. But they did not. Later, all present in the room would give different accounts of what happened in that control room. Fingers pointing at everyone else. But what we know for a fact is that six minutes after the power fall began, they scrambled to bring the power back up. Six long minutes, xenon gas poisoned the reactor. And reviving a poisoned reactor is not easy. The engineers began manually removing control rods. For 20 minutes, Yuri Tregub, another shift lead that wanted to watch the test, and Leonid Topanov struggled with the control panel buttons and joystick. They were successful in bringing the reactor up to 200 megawatts, but could not get it to go any higher. At 1 a.m., they had withdrawn 203 of the 211 control rods. Xenon continued to pollute the RBMK-1000. Removing such a large number of rods was forbidden. But the engineers remained unaware of the importance of the rods and the safety of running the reactor to the safety of running the reactor. So these rods are so important to keep shit together. And by removing them and removing such a large, large amount of them, they they doomed the reactor to fail. So when they reinserted all the rods simultaneously, it would trigger a reactor runaway. At this point, Chernobyl could have possibly been prevented if they had carefully stabilized the reactor and slowly shut it down. But they did not. This is Soviet Russia. We go big or we go home. Yeah. Two of the ginormous circulation pumps came online. They were never intended to run at such low power. By forcing cool water into the core, they further upset the balance. Boris, oh, this is the name I knew I was going to be, I was going to fuck up. Boris Stolyarchuk, <laughs> fucking Stolyarchuk, Boris Stolyarchuk, engineer in control of the water pumps, fought to correct the water and steam levels. 15 cubic meters of coolant pumped into the reactor every second, absorbing neurons in the core. The automatic regulation system compensated this fall in reactivity by withdrawing even more control rods. The water then moved so fast through the core that it nearly boiled and turned to steam. Thus, the reactor became even more unstable at even, at even the slightest change in power. Now, the reactor rundown finally came. Anatoly Dyatlov, chief engineer, is cool as a cucumber during all this. Everything's fine. He knows it's fine. No worries. It's, it's good. This is normal. And so he ordered the test to continue despite the now 10 panic-stricken engineers in the control room. He ordered Alexander Akimov to begin at 1.22 a.m. At 1.23 a.m., Tupanov stabilized the reactor at 200 megawatts. 
They kicked on all eight circulation pumps and pressurized water forced itself into the valves. Directly above 164 of the 200 control rods were still withdrawn. So they manually withdrew 203 of them, shoved them all back in at one time. Then the core automatically was like, oh, fuck, and it removed 164 of them. So rejected. Yeah. So and I'm going to use a direct quote from Adam Higginbotham in his book, uh, Midnight in Chernobyl, for how he described this. The metaphors he used in this book are astounding. So he says, essentially, the reactor became a, quote, pistol with the hammer cocked. All that remained was for someone to pull the trigger, unquote. Bang. Yep. The command to turn the oscilloscope on. Turbine control operator Igor, oh, fuck, this one's even worse. Igor Kirschenbaum closed the steam relief valves. The circulating coolant grew hotter and hotter. It increasingly turned to steam releasing more heat and a dangerous cycle began called a positive void but the control panel revealed nothing unusual all the men in the control room actually thought that everything was fine that everything worked out Antony Dietlov was right there's nothing wrong there's no nothing bad happening doing this test after exactly 36 seconds the test was over all right that wasn't so bad. Cool. Akimov gave the command to shut down the reactor. Everyone was calm as Tupinov pressed a large red button and the reactor began to power down. The control rods began to lower back into the reactor. And at two meters, something happened so fast that the reactor recording instruments could not catch it. In less than a second, as the rods entered the top of the reactor, boron carbide filled their upper sections. The reactivity of the reactor fell, as if shutting down, until the graphite tips of the control rods sank into the lower part of the core, displacing water. This generated more steam, which generated more reactivity. The positive void effect was fed. Two seconds later, the chain reaction hit an unstoppable speed. A critical mass formed at the bottom of the reactor. The chain reaction shot up and out the core. The staff in the control room were no longer calm. A more frightening succession of alarms blared. Power excursion rate emergency increase. Emergency power protection system. Buzzers blared power surge. Alexander Akimov, now panicked and screaming, shut down the reactor. The turbine engineer, Yuri Tregub, heard the rotations decelerating, but then they kicked to a loud roar, and the building began to shake. Yuri thought this was a side effect of the test, because the test hadn't been done in two years. He's never experienced it, so this must be normal. In reality, the building was shaking and the roaring was loud 
because the reactor was destroying itself. In three seconds, thermal power leapt to more than 100 times the maximum. Fuel channels overheated rapidly and approached melting point. At 3,000 degrees centigrade, the alloy exploded. Shrapnel flew into the surrounding channels, instantly boiling the water into steam. The channels broke apart. Rods jammed at the halfway point. The steam release valve snapped open, uh, but became overwhelmed and disintegrated. High above, 80-kilogram fuel channel caps began to bounce around like toys. Now, hold on, because somewhere I was supposed to write... Did I just do that in my head? (gasps) That time I hit the button. You did hit the button. Now, I realized something while you're trying to find this. Um, So anybody that's listening to the podcast... You're going to completely have missed this because I'm going to edit it out. Uh, But our little fiasco earlier with the wrong button getting hit and whatnot, I can't edit that out of the video. So anybody that sees this on YouTube, you'll get to see all of that. You'll get to see us (laughs) laughing and talking about editing it out because I don't really think I have a way to edit that out. So we'll, you know, we'll see what happens. Maybe that'll give you a reason to go watch on YouTube. Yeah. Um, Maybe not. Maybe I'll find a way to edit it. The world may never know. But while Megan frantically, excuse me, frantically flips. Okay. Pages. Okay. Okay. Oh, never mind. She's oh, got it. Thank God. Sorry. I was making sure I actually wrote down what I thought I wrote down oh, and I didn't man. just do it in my head. Sorry. At 3,000 degrees centigrade, the alloy exploded. Shrapnel flew into the surrounding channels, instantly boiling. The water to steam. The channels broke apart. Rods jammed at the halfway point. The steam release valves snapped open, but became so overwhelmed that they disintegrated. High above, 80 kilograms of fuel channel caps began to bounce around like toys. Pressure increase in reactor space warned at Topamov's control panel. No shit. The walls escalated from vibrating to shaking. There was a loud bang. Thermal power peaked at 12 billion watts. The pressure inside shot steam up so quickly that the 2,000-ton concrete and metal shield ripped off its mountings and pressure tubes sliced away in clean cuts at their welds. It threw it like a fucking coin. Mm. At this point, the temperature inside the reactor was 4,650 degrees centigrade. The surface of the sun is just 950 degrees hotter at only 5,600 degrees centigrade. That's how you know we done fucked up as a species <laughs> when we've, one of our fuck-ups is almost as hot as the goddamn sun. Yeah. Alexander Akimov threw the switch to release the rods and let them fall under their own weight. 
but they didn't move. It was too late. At 1.24 a.m. on Saturday, April 26, 1986, Reactor 4 was obliterated by an explosion equivalent to 60 tons of TNT. It tossed the upper shield away like flipping a coin, shot a 350-ton refueling machine away like a bullet, and pulled a high-bray bridge crane away at the rails. It demolished the walls of the reactor hall and stripped away the roof to the stars above. In the blink of an eye, the core was destroyed. Almost seven tons of uranium fuel shot into the atmosphere, Mm. forming gases and aerosols deadly to humans. And in the book, in Midnight in Chernobyl, uh, Adam goes on to list all the chemicals that formed and the amount of them that formed. And it's like an entire page long. Every one of them are extremely deadly to humans. While you've, while you've been talking, uh, and once you got to the, like the chemical part, I pulled up ptable.com here and I'm trying to dust off some of my chemistry knowledge. And I actually learned a lot about how nuclear reactors and nuclear power plants work. Um, and where the fuel comes from, because it comes from uranium, which is found in minerals, which are found in rocks. He so, is a geologist, if you guys are just now joining in. He likes rocks. I do like rocks. And he does not think crystal people deserve any respect. I met someone that was a crystal person the other day. <laughs> and it took everything I had not to just be like, it does nothing. Oh. Anyway, I was nice. I was good. So, there's that. Anyway. Back to it. Yes. 1,300 tons of graphite rubble caught fire immediately when exposed to the air. Alexander Yovchenko, a staff member not present in the control room, thought the Americans finally started the war and wanted to find a place to hide. Valerie Kodemichuk was stationed at the main circulation pumps. He was the first to die, literally vaporized in the explosion. Inside the control room of number four, dust and debris fell around Akimov, Kupinov, and Dyatlov, surrounded by an odd gray fog. Lamps monitoring radiation switched from green to red. Outside the plant, nearby personal, nearby personnel and off-duty staff heard a sonic boom like a plane breaking the sound barrier. A shockwave struck moments after the blast, and in the distance, Reactor 4 was aglow. Sparks and molten debris shot like confetti from the ruined reactor. This debris caught Reactor 3, and the reactor equipment building aflame. That's just a goddamn bad day. Oh yeah. Uh, on, no, no, no. Let me let me amend that. That's that's a goddamn bad day. Just got worse. Yeah. Not so. only did you blow it up, you caught some other shit on fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh so remember director Viktor Brukhanov, who is in charge of the entire plant who did not want to be in charge of the Trier plant, tried to quit, was not allowed to quit. He was sent to Gulag. Well, 
I'm going to end this part, uh, this segment of our uh, wonder segment with a quote from the book at the end of chapter five. Quote, three kilometers away, the citizens of Priot slept on. Inside Viktor Brukhanov's apartment on Liena Prospect, the telephone began to ring. Bring, 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 bring. <laughs> Something just got fucked up. All right. Well, that was a very ravishing tale. What are we sitting at time-wise? Uh, we're about an uh, hour and 20. Okay. So not yeah. too bad. Okay, I definitely am glad I split it into two parts. <laughs> yeah, I was I was actually gonna start like, like signaling up, signaling here pretty soon. Um, all right, well, so you guys have heard where we're at, so we're gonna jump right into it. Trivia with Tyler. Uh, we're going to hope that that doesn't get us any kind of uh, copyright copyright claims. claim on YouTube, but we'll see. Yep. Um, All so, right. I'm ready for a Tyler nugget after well, that. Well, it's actually, uh, I, like I said, I've been getting a little bit ahead here uh, just because we were off there for that week and whatnot. So since your topic has been so, uh, since it's so long and since you have so many notes, I'm going to do a quick little baby Tyler nugget today. Okay. Dolly Parton once secretly entered a Dolly Parton lookalike competition and lost to a man. <laughs> oh, shit. That's like Charlie Chaplin uh, losing a lookalike Charlie Chaplin contest. That also happened. Oh, yeah? Yep. I don't think he lost to a woman, though. So. Uh, yeah, that's pretty rough that she lost to a man. Damn, and Dolly is gorgeous. Or was gorgeous. Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> At one point, Dolly was gorgeous. All right. Too much plastic now. Uh, let's see. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Hit I've the got... right button, Tyler. Mail time. I knew I had a drop for it somewhere. It's just <laughs> hiding. All right. So we're going to get into mail time. Uh, we actually got our second ever mail from someone that we don't know yay a, a second ever yeah okay. yeah everyone else has either been friends we know or family members or someone else so if you're a stranger and you don't know me and tyler please email us sure. that literally makes our day yeah absolutely. even when it's insulting like even when it's criticism yeah it we, makes us we love the criticism like yeah. bring it on um it's i mean it helps us get better it does 100 percent uh, and I'm doing something I'm trying to not do and say, uh, a lot. I'm looking at my phone right now, trying to pull up these folks's, uh, thing, what they sent us here. Um, <laughs> I'm yeah, trying not to say, um, there it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So my contact is bothering me and everything's blurry right now, but this was a comment on Reddit. Um, and it says, I really like your content. I envy you. Let's try that again. <laughs> Damn. I really like your content and I envy your audio quality. Very interesting story about the potato famine. I am in no way a podcast expert, 
but there are a lot of ums as I listen to this podcast, but I also understand that there may be an interest in keeping it natural. It took a bit to register, but once once it did, they were there. Good luck with the podcast, and if you get a chance, let us know how we're doing and get closer to your quality. Millennial Marriage is the name of their podcast. I gave it a listen, uh, a couple episodes. I think it's a pretty cool concept. I don't know if you I did not. listened. I um, did not. I'm I not did. officially married, so. Uh, I'm not either. I don't even want to get married, but I thought it was a cool concept, and they kind of told their story of how they met and... You know, they were even playing some fun little games and whatnot. So if that's your thing, if you're interested in that and want to get to know these, this sounds like a really cool couple. Yeah. Um, All right. You know, give them a listen. Millennial marriage. All right. I might also have to give them a listen. So thank you. Yeah, we appreciate the feedback. It is something we're working on. It Uh, is. I heard myself smack my lips several times during this recording and hated myself every time I did it. So I apologize for that as well. Yeah. So ums. Long, awkward pauses, uh, lip smacking. Yeah, we're we're working on that. We're, we're trying. Not, we're not professional, and uh, we do want to have some ums. You know, it, it is a conversation. Yeah. You know, we want it to sound normal. Yeah, we are um, two friends getting together every week. Here and bullshit and kind yeah. of, in a way, uh, yes, we put some effort into our bullshit, but, you know, we are still bullshitting and drinking whiskey. Yeah. At the end of the day. Yeah. And I mean, there's also the alcohol. Not that this amount affects, but usually on Sundays when I have a few beers during on the afternoon. So <laughs> we've all heard you get sloshed on this podcast. Yeah, yeah. That Check happens out episode once. five. Happens once. <laughs> You'll never live it down. <gasps> God <laughs> damn it. <laughs> That's all right. I'll never live that down. <laughs> nope. Um, so we appreciate your, your message and, uh, we hope you guys, we want to wish y'all luck with your podcast as well. Definitely. Um, uh, as far as sound quality goes, Tyler is in charge of all of that. He is the master technician. I am just the pretty face. Um, she's the brains and I'm the fingers. I do the buttons and all that good stuff and the sound quality. That's all I yeah. do. Well, I, don't, I don't even want to say the brawn cause I'm not brawn, brawn. <laughs> what I just say, brawn. I'm not. I'm not brawn from Game of Thrones. Oh, wow. Um, and this our second message this week. Um, from uh, mailbag comes from friend Shelby, who did what we probably should have done if we were better at this. To be quite <laughs> honest, so thank you, friend Shelby. Thank you, friend Shelby, for doing this and for also silently shaming us. Um, she says, hello, my friends did some homework this week and emailed Flaviar to figure out how those tasting note card, how to read those tasting, uh, note cards, see their email attached as to how to read them. Start on the outside for most prevalent notes and work your way inward for the less noticeable notes. Hope it helps. If you'd like me to follow up with a question, let me know. So that was Shelby's message. This is what Flaviar sent her. Hi, Shelby. Here's the information I just received. It should start from the outside inwards, meaning the bigger icons present the more prevalent notes and the smaller icons inside of the spiral are less prevalent, more difficult to catch, in other words. That is some bullshit. This is subjective. And of course, as we all have different abilities to recognize notes. 
I hope this sheds some light on the matter. Nope. So. And not at all. This, not, yeah, not at all. Because In fact, remind me to take a photo and I will upload a photo of our uh, Flaviar card next to our uh, sample this week so you guys can see what we're talking about. I actually have last week's card and this week's card. And if you watched last week, I held it up to the camera. I'm going to do that again here. Again, listen to what they say. It starts from outside inwards, meaning the bigger icons present are more prevalent and the smaller icons inside the spiral are less prevalent. If you look at these, I'm trying to get them in focus here. The bigger goddamn icons are in the middle of the fucking spiral. At the end. At the end. So that means the more prevalent ones are... I am so confused yeah. now. The small ones are at the end, so maybe it maybe they told us backwards. And maybe and I don't know. I mean, I, I'm bigger, so confused. Bigger being more prevalent makes sense. Yes, it does. But starting outside in, fucking it, confused it, it me because that's where the little tiny icons are. And I so, think I think that's what what is. I think that's the mistake is that you start on the inside and work your way out because. Just on the one from today, and even back to the one last week, which the spice was pretty noticeable. It shouldn't be on the outside and small, but it was a sherry cask aged um, whiskey. Sherry is the main note. Today, vanilla, apple, peach, you know, the fruit that we had early on, Mm -hmm. and then chocolate was one of those that I had to read it. To be like, oh taste. yeah, okay, I can I can taste that that's there. Oh, this stupid thing. You just got it to refocus. I just had uh, it focused the other day. Well, anyway, uh, so Flaviar, if you are actually listening, which you claim to be, please shade confirm how we read your flavor spirals, because clearly Tyler and I are dumb. Yes. So help us help you so that way we can send more people to flaviar and it sounds like we actually know what we're doing please <laughs> sorry i'm i'm playing with my I camera see you're to try and get with it, the camera get it focused anyway um, i'll let megan post these on instagram or i'll post them one of us will yep and uh that was our um that was our mailbag so we'll just jump in <laughs> Final thoughts. And I'm going to start by saying I finished mine about halfway through Megan's narrative. Um, I still so. have some of mine left because I got so into talking. You didn't talk until I was almost finished with mine. Are you, I'm sorry. You didn't drink until I was almost finished with mine. Yeah, I, um, I went a little overboard in my passion this week. That I, oh. I love it. That is a great topic. I, I love stuff like that. I think... Um, Another podcast has done one that that was like the first episode I listened to of that specific podcast, which you know which one I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Um, so, yeah, I I thought the topic was awesome. As far as the whiskey itself, um, for whatever reason, I tended to end up just kind of shooting it more. Uh, I, like I tried to drink it both ways. But when I was absentmindedly drinking it, listening to you, it ended up being more of like me shooting it. I guess that's just what I'm in the habit of doing. And it is not 
uh, I did not enjoy shooting it. The burn was way more intense. Um, but as far as sipping goes, I did enjoy sipping it. Um, it was well balanced. That's that's what I took away from it. It had some sweet. It had some peat. It had some spice. It was overall nice. Okay. Yes, I just came up with that on top of my head. You're a poet. And didn't know it. Oh my god. Um, well, I do not know about this whiskey very much. I've wanted to do that all day. Just let it happen. Okay. <laughs> we are going to lose so many subscribers. <laughs> it's all right. I have been doing shitty Russian accent as well. Yes. <laughs> good thing. Good thing we don't do vodka on this podcast. Oh my god. <laughs> um. I I definitely agree with you that it is very well balanced. It has a great sweet, a great peat, a great spice. They're all very equal in each other. But I don't know if I liked it. Oh. So I'm. Mark of death. I'm slightly disappointed um, in you, Belgium. I thought you could do better. Um, I mean, these are the people that put mayonnaise on their french fries. That is delicious. What is wrong with you? Mayonnaise is the goddamn devil. Duke's You'll mayonnaise in the South? You are from the South. You have Dukes. I don't give a damn. It's the I, devil. I, 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 I'm broken. Good. <laughs> um, <laughs> nope, I'm not a mayonnaise fan. I am a mayonnaise fan, so fuck you, mayonnaise gonna, is great. I'm going to get you Miracle Whip for Ugh. Christmas. No, Miracle yep. Whip is so sweet and disgusting. That's what I'm bleh. getting you. Oh, my God. I'm going to googly eye your entire house. Uh, guys, this just became a one-person podcast. <laughs> it was nice knowing you guys. <laughs> I'm just going to set up two cameras on me now. <laughs> can you make a girl voice? Yes. Yes, I can. <laughs> See, I sound just like Megan. <laughs> oh, that's a fantastic impersonation. You should do that professionally. Oh, I think I will. Okay. Well. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Um, so, uh, at the end of the day, for me, I'm going to rate it, I'm going to rate it seven. I'm going to go with seven. I was, I was debating on a six and a half, but I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt, even though I ended up kind of absentmindedly shooting it. I did really enjoy it when I, um, when I sipped it. So, okay. I think this is going to be the first time in 26 episodes where you have such polarizing yeah. uh, increase yeah. in our flavors. Typically, we tend to be fairly similar. Yeah, fairly within a close. point or two, yeah. Um, I'm giving this one a three. Mm, that might be the first three we've ever had. I'm, I'm not... I mean, do you remember Wolfburn? We gave that a zero. No, I'm just saying, I don't think we've rated anything. Anything a of, three? I don't oh. think either one of us has done a three yet. Yeah, okay, well, I'm, I'm giving this guy a three. It's not my favorite. I do not like the aftertaste. The peat is just sticking around too long. Um, I find that very interesting. You don't like the peat. You don't like, which is the 
one of the signatures of basically Scotch style, mm-hmm. and Japanese whiskeys are wannabe Scotch whiskeys, essentially. Well, I've never tasted peat in a Japanese I don't, whiskey. I don't know if they use peat per se, but they try to do everything the same way Scotch folks do. So it, I just oh. find that very interesting. Well, I don't know. That's that's my two cents. So you're going with a three, and I'm going with a seven. So yep. this this is the most polarizing whiskey we've had so far. But mm. I guess on that note, guys, we're running a little long today. That'll we make are. up for us running a little short last week. Indeed. Um, join us next week for part two of the Chernobyl. I guess the topic won't be a uh, surprise. So no, you guys are gonna know. Uh, this week we talked about the actual disaster, what happened, and how it happened. Next week, we are going to go over the Chernobyl aftermath, which is now the reactor has exploded. What's done has been done. Let's see how the USSR handles it. All right. Well, I guess on that note, check us out, whiskeyandwonder.com, YouTube, Whiskey and Wonder, everywhere else in the show notes. Yep. And most importantly, Don't drink and drive. Cheers. (laughs) Whoops.